Welcome to Mike's Notes, episode 41. Today, a few lessons from the outsiders. The Outsider is the title of a book by William Thorndike, and in that book, Thorndike looks at uh, what he says are eight unconventional CEOs and their radically rational blueprint for success. And that explanation is from the subtitle of the book. What I really enjoyed about this book, about Thorndike's writing in general, was just how concise and focused and efficient it was. There was no um, extra words. There were no extra stories. He really just focused on the key facts that he wanted to lay out about how these outsiders uh, did what they did. One quick note before we jump into my book notes. This was already available online on medium.com and on my blog, The Waiter's Pad. So if you have read those posts, this podcast is just a rehash of uh, what those posts said with maybe a little more elaboration. But I wanted to put this out in audio format too for anyone that might have missed that because the book was really good. So Thorndike's attempt for the book is to look at other CEOs who succeeded. Look at people who aren't on the traditional magazine cover. He, said, he writes in the book that we see this action-oriented leader who works in a gleaming office building and is surrounded by an army of hardworking fellow MBAs. So we're aware of the people that are on magazine covers and that are active on social media and that are interviewed on CNBC. We see all of those people, but there's a lot of other people who are succeeding that we don't see that we can look at and we can learn from. This general starting place was where I started from, too, in my book, 28 Lessons from Startups That Failed. In that book, I wanted to figure out what did failed startups do and what about those things overlap with what successful startups do. I found in the book that there were a lot of things that we think or that I thought were important to startup success that really don't matter. For example, I thought if you were accepted into a really good incubator, uh, your range of success was, was from average success to stratospheric success. But that's not true. There were a lot of startups that were never acquired, that never had IPOs, that just sort of fizzled out. Another thing that you can't be is you can't just be really smart. The people that uh, wrote postmortems and that I featured in the book were really, really intelligent people, some with many years of experience of starting different things and running companies. So you can't just be smart to succeed. And this is the ethos. This is the spirit that Thorndike adopts, too, for his book. As I read his book, there were six big themes that came up that really were worth emphasizing and drawing together as a conclusion. There were six big things that I think any business can adopt, whether or not you're an outsider or an insider. Those six things were, one, you have to be different and you have to find the truth no matter what. Two, you have to keep your own scorecard. Three, if you can, decentralize command of your operations. Four, Forecasting well is really hard, and it's a time-intensive activity with a low return on that investment. Five, keep a low overhead. And six, think like a crocodile. Ready? One. You have to be different, and you have to focus on finding the truth. 
the last episode of this podcast looked at the book, The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks. And in the blog post, I start off with a quote from Marks. I do not believe the consensus view is necessarily correct. Howard Marks wrote about the efficient market hypothesis. And Marx's big thing, if you missed that other podcast, was that to really succeed, you have to outperform the market. So you have to be different, and you have to find things that are true. Each of the eight outsiders, Thorndike profiles, earns their reputation because they outperform both the industry and their colleagues and the general market. For each outsider he profiles, he compares it to the... Uh, stock market returns of their industry and the stock market returns of the S&P 500. Because Thorndike wants to get past people who just floated up on rising tides. That's an idea we've adopted from Warren Buffett. Before Buffett started Berkshire Hathaway, he had the limited partnerships where he invested basically friends and family's money. And each letter to the partnership, Buffett would include a reference to ducks on a rising pond or a rising tide. And Buffett wanted to point out to those investors that he's flapped his wings a little bit rather than just ridden up with the tide. Because you can do the tide. You can do what other people are doing and you can have the success that other people are having. And that's true and that's fine for a lot of things. But if you want to rise faster than the market, you have to be different. You have to answer the question that Peter Thiel asks. What do you believe is true that nobody else believes? How did the outsiders do this? For starters, most outsiders had fresh eyes and could take a broom to the cobwebs, writes Thorndike. They were well-educated but poorly experienced as executives. This was a plus. They never succumbed to things have always been this way momentum or inertia or other biases that exist because we've always done something or we've always been around these people or the system is the way it is but nobody really knows why. Another thing these outsiders did was they relentlessly pursued the truth. As a group they were at their core rational and pragmatic agnostic and clear-eyed writes Thorndike. He includes this quote from Benjamin Graham in the book as well that I found really powerful. You are not right because others agree with you but because your facts and reasoning are sound. So you have to skip past some of the social norms or emotions or biases to really figure out what is the truth? What is the kernel of the thing that we're looking at? Finally, the outsiders were emotionally tough. It's not easy to be different. In my book on failed startups, I was a little surprised. I was a little taken back at the emotion that these people shared in their postmortems. It's really hard to be different and it was really hard for those people to fail. It's it's one thing to intellectualize it, to talk about it on a podcast and to hear it through your car stereo or through your earbuds, but it's really another thing to go through it. We think we can prepare for it, but it's going to be really hard. In the book, Catherine Graham is the only woman that Thorndike profiles, and I think part of the reason she's the only woman is because how hard it is to be different. This is what Thorndike writes, that Graham was on a lonely path, a particularly difficult position for the only female executive in a high-profile, clubby, male-dominated industry. So my guess is that because it's tough, anyone with additional hurdles to clear, like if you're a woman in this clubby male world, it's going to be even harder to be different and to get these outside returns. But be different, you must. Two. 
So, if you're going to play a different game than everyone else, you have to keep a different score than everyone else. One of the CEOs at Thorndike Profiles, Tom Murray, said, The goal isn't to have the longest trip, but to arrive at the station first using the least fuel. The outsiders did this mostly by focusing on cash or shareholder value. An emphasis on this metric meant matching means to those ends. Another thing that made this easier was that these CEOs were mostly removed from the cacophony of New York City. This is what Thorndike writes. This distance helped insulate them from the din of Wall Street's conventional wisdom. They didn't have someone yelling at them. They didn't have this uh, echo chamber that they had to figure out the signal from the noise. When Ed Catmull talked to Jason Calacanis on his podcast, he briefly touched on his experiences working with George Lucas before Pixar was sold off. And Catmull said that Lucas moved to San Francisco to get away from the din of Hollywood. He wanted to be different. Lucas wanted to make different movies. He had this idea of what he wanted to do, and he recognized that he couldn't do it there. Sometimes you have to be somewhere else to get away from that. And being somewhere else means you can keep a more accurate scorecard. You can figure out the other things that are important to you, like cash or cash flows or shareholder value. You can focus on those things because it's easier based on where you are. Seth Klarman recalls a client coming in and, explain, and wanting to explain how they benchmark Klarman's results. But Klarman said, I won't meet with you. I'll meet with you on anything else, but not on that, because it will change what I do. So Klarman recognized that if this person were to come into his office and explain how he was being graded or how he was being scored, it would affect what he does. And that's what all of the outsiders avoided. Klarman isn't featured in this book, but he followed this different path of keeping an inner scorecard, focusing on something else that mattered rather than what other people told you what mattered. Three. The outsiders all adopted a decentralized command in their organization. That so many great companies were run by so few people shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. Decentralized command is the cornerstone of our philosophy, read a Cap City's annual report. Tom Murphy said to hire the best people you can and leave them alone. Warren Buffett put it even more succinctly. Hire well, manage little. Decentralized command is the belief that people closest to the problem will arrive at the best solution. Another CEO that's done really well, but also wasn't in the book, is Andy Grove. And this is what Grove wrote in his book, Only the Paranoid Survive. They, that is middle management, usually know more about upcoming changes than senior management because they spend so much time outdoors where the winds of the real world blow in their faces. Another part of the book, Grove wrote, I feel much safer back here in California than he does in enemy territory, but is my perspective the right one, or is his? Grove's company, Intel, was saved because of decentralized command. The process of adapting to change starts with employees who, through their daily work, adjust to the new outside forces, Grove wrote. It means letting people make their own good decisions. Charlie Munger has said, we've decentralized power in our operating business to a point just short of total abdication. So decentralized command, as I see it, as I understood it through the book and through some of my other readings, is like a stool top that sits on three legs. 
First, you have to hire the best people. Second, you have to leave them alone. And third, you have to argue well. And it's this third leg of the stool that the other outsiders really did well. They were able to argue well. Caesar Switzer was an analyst that helped uh, one group of outsiders make certain strategic acquisitions for their company. And he said that office of the chairman meetings were like wrestling matches conducted in a constructive collegial way. Andy Grove, too, encouraged good arguments, writing, We developed a style of ferociously arguing with one another while remaining friends. Scott Pioli said that when he worked with the New England Patriots, that part of the evaluation of coaches was whether or not they had an opinion, whether or not they could argue well and have their argument backed up by facts and have those facts play out as true. So arguing well is important in the communication in an organization that's adopted decentralized command. Four. The outsiders were all great time managers. None fretted about appearances and all committed to the work with the highest returns. That meant reading, getting their hands dirty, and talking to people smarter than, than them. It didn't mean meetings or public relations or even forecasting. Henry Singleton said, My only plan is to keep coming to work each day. I like to steer the boat each day rather than plan ahead, way into the future. The outsiders spent more of their time in the moment than in the future. Though Thorndike doesn't address it in the book, I have two guesses why this is the tact they took. One, the future is hard to predict, and two, plans have an anchoring effect. Not only is the future hard to predict, but we tend to overestimate our abilities. We watch sports because the players and plays are great, but we also sometimes think, I could have done better than that, at each drop or missed putt. Maybe, but probably not. Plans also anchor your thinking. Once you have a plan, you have this thing, and you start to compare options to the thing, and it's easy to get anchored to the thing. Daniel Kahneman compares anchoring to ballparks. The anchor is the epicenter, and once we drop it, it's hard to move. If you peg returns or cost anything to your thing, it becomes the comparison until it's dislodged. And dislodging, of course, comes with the price of energy, time, and even more money. The outsiders avoided this fuss. The outsiders focused on things that they had the most control over. Part of the success of Warren Buffett, who's featured in the book, is that he invests in these businesses where he can reallocate the capital. He invests in things where he can have a real effect on the outcome. Other investors take this similar path. When Chris Saka and Mark Cuban were both on the ABC show Shark Tank, they both talked on that show and in other interviews about how they try to focus on businesses where they can move the needle. They want to throw their weight behind something where they're pushing in a direction that matters, where they're doing something where they have experience. And a lot of the outsider CEOs did this too. They realized that their resources in time and money were finite. And to get the most value, to get the greatest returns of their effort, they should do things that would have the most effect. Here's an easy business tip. Keep a low overhead. This is what Thorndike writes. There's an apparent inverse correlation between the construction of elaborate new headquarter buildings and investor returns. Specifically, debt interest. Each of the outsiders wielded debt like a chainsaw, with care and attention. We can step back for just a moment and understand the value of low overhead if we consider numerical fluency 
which Charlie Munger says, if you don't have, makes you a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. A lot of the CEOs and executives that I read about and studied and learned from suggest and espouse and emphasize this idea of having a low overhead. Sophia Amoruso points out that as she grew her company Nasty Gal, she really stair-stepped her way into progressively larger spaces. First it was an apartment, then it was a pool house, then it moved on to a small industrial space, then a large industrial space. She even went so far as to return office furniture that was purchased when she was on vacation because it was so expensive. Ben Horowitz writes about the value of low overhead because it helped him get a cash flow positive situation and keep control of his company. Horowitz realized that if he couldn't be cash flow positive, he was going to lose his company to his investors. Yvonne Chunard ate cat food before he founded, founded Patagonia. Chunard realized, whether explicitly or not, that if he could keep his costs down and if he could study what it meant to be uh, good outdoor equipment or to have good outdoor equipment, then he could really refine and figure out what good outdoor equipment was. The Instagram founders lived on peanut butter sandwiches, two computers, and a rented server when they founded their company. When Michael Ovitz and his partners founded CAA, they did so on borrowed office furniture and space a gift of office supplies, and they had their wives answering the phones in the early days. A low overhead gives you time, it avoids the hedonic treadmill, and it steers you clear of dealing with loss aversion. 6. The outsiders were also crocodiles. There's a joke in NBA commentary that people don't like to trade with the San Antonio Spurs because that team has made so many good trades and people assume that if they're trading with them, they're going to be on the wrong end of it. The Spurs, like the Outsiders, are crocodilian. They wait and they wait and they wait and then they go. Time after time, a non-Outsider CEO paid too much for an asset, failed to seize the opportunity, and needed to sell it in a worse climate than when they bought it. They were like a thirsty animal needing any source of water. The outsiders were the crocodiles. John Malone scooped up Metropolitan Cable Companies for a fraction of what they had been purchased for years before. Catherine Graham scooped up over-leveraged newspaper publishers that her peers thought she should have bought five years earlier, but buying five years later proved a much better deal. Warren Buffett scooped up a portion of Goldman Sachs when that company was facing a liquidity crisis. Not from the book, but also applicable, Bill Belichick scooped up Randy Moss from the Oakland Raiders after Moss failed to uh, pan out as a successful player that the Raiders hoped he would be. The best managers, the best CEOs, never paid too much for something. Each outsider in the book had some level that they wouldn't cross, even by a hair. John Malone's hurdle, for example, was five times cash flow. So if a company was asking more than that as a purchase price, he just walked away. He was never in a hurry. The crocodile does not pursue its prey. It waits for it, and so did the outsiders. Warren Buffett describes his investing activity as inactivity bordering on sloth. Richard Feynman espoused this mindset, too, when he wrote, the only way to solve such a thing, like safe cracking in Feynman's case, is patience. You have to wait and wait and wait and wait, and then when you see something that's a great opportunity, you have to jump on it. 
there are many ways for a company to succeed, and William Thorndike only features one vein or one area. I thought his book was fantastic. It was really an efficient read. It was really valuable. The stories and examples he used were sticky enough that you'll always remember them, but they weren't so outlandish that they weren't believable. Thanks for listening to episode 40 of Mike's Notes. Very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave. And take your book with you.